Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We looked last week at the first 14 verses. We will proceed to reflect upon those verses and move forward this morning, looking at the next set or number of verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. By way of reminder, I will read those first 14 verses. We'll Go to Lord in prayer, and then we'll proceed with the text. The writer writes, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The, wise, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house of, a heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him." Father, I pray that you would bless us as we look again to Ecclesiastes and look again to Koheleth as he writes and reflects upon the things that he had gleaned in life, the things and the lessons that he had learned, about the heartaches that became realities for him, and the challenge of sorting it all out, trying to figure it out, particularly at the expense of the sovereignty of God here under the sun. Much of what he says resonates with us, for we too experience this human existence under the sun in a fallen world, and much of it is perplexing and troubling. Much of it is agitating, but I pray that in some way we can take away wisdom, godly wisdom, from the Scripture and even from the mouth of the Koheleth as he shares his conclusions as he wrestles through his struggles openly for all to see, and as he draws an assembly together to share what he's learned, the brief and few days of his life. Encourage us, challenge us, and bless us, and comfort us, and do what only you can do through the pages of your Word. For your glory alone we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We reflect upon this passage of Scripture in a world that has gone haywire. 
Oftentimes it brings to our attention this desire for a different time, a better time, a time of normalcy where everything was going the way we wanted it to go, and there was a particular comfort in the routines of life. Instead of a time in which we live where everything is upset, everything is being redone, rethought, reworked, and quite frankly, paganizing. We wrestle with that, and we wring our hands as God's people saying, what's going on? Oh, for the good old days. The writer of Ecclesiastes warns us in verse 10 of this chapter, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There's a danger in romanticizing the past. There's a danger for longing for the good old days. There's a danger for, from saying, I wish I could go back and do, or I wish I could go back and experience. Because if you're anything like the Koheleth who writes the text and shares his struggles, says you can't go back, and even if you could you would be disappointed at what you found. David Gibson particularly grabs this verse in his text on Ecclesiastes and, and, and really talks about reminiscence and longing and, and the desire to go back. And he incites in his reflections the great Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis. I'll give you this caveat. There's much that we can learn from C.S. Lewis, but he wasn't a theologian. And some of his theological conclusions we would struggle with. But as a philosopher, he was a brilliant man. And in his reflections upon this life and nostalgia that draws us back to the past and the desire of the human heart to go back some point in time, some point of reference in the past to say, now there, that's when life was good, when life is so agitated in your present circumstances He has an explanation that I believe is in keeping with the book of Ecclesiastes and many of the words of the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the pundit, as he explains to us his experiences. And leading up until this point in time, Gibson says, when we realize that we cannot explain everything in life, when we realize that the people we love will become ill and die… We don't know why God would allow this to happen. Once we accept the reality of injustice and oppression, we have to face the fact that there is a throbbing hurt at the core of our soul that just won't go away. And one option is to try and flee reality and numb the pain and avoid the problems entirely. Party as hard as we can and laugh as loud and as often as possible drink ourselves into oblivion, live in the past or in a land of make-believe instead of living in the present. And that's the root of escapism. For many of us, as he ties into the philosophies of C.S. Lewis, he said, we try and escape to, to a different time, any place but here. And most of the time, it's a reversion to the past where things were going well, and we long for those days that we didn't have these challenges, and we didn't have these problems, and we weren't in this place. It's a dangerous place to go. Because the past gets better and better the further we get away from it. And our mind has a tendency to 
grab on to that which is good or better in our minds. As he reveals all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that which is best escapes us oftentimes. Gibson writes this longing, this romanticizing, this reminiscing of the past. In the context of his text, he says, when you mature, you realize that nostalgia plays a kind of trick on you. It intensifies your emotions. When you grow up, you realize that if you could go back to that hillside, it might be nice, it might be lovely, but it would be also ordinary in some ways. And simply going back to it would not generate the intensity of feeling. C.S. Lewis, in his text as he mulls nostalgia and and this desire to go back in the past, talks about uh, emotionally immature individuals who long to go backwards, to go in the past somehow. And he paints the picture of a child who, in his childhood, perhaps on, on his grandfather's estate or farm, like many of you can remember, would run through the hills untethered and can go and do and explore and, and just have a blast. And, and the, the sound of the loud world is distant, far distant from him. And he hears the sounds of nature and he explores the realities of creation. And they were good times and they were beautiful times. And sometimes there is a longing to go back there. Why? Because we have this sense of longing for peace and tranquility. We have this desire for an uncomplicated life. We have a longing for beauty and and perfection, a, a sense of being home. That was my favorite place. Do you ever hear yourself walking through those chapters in life? It's interesting how this works. I have fond memories of spending much time in my grandparents' home on Lincoln Avenue, Johnson City. It was such a huge house with such a few huge backyard, and we would run, and we would catch bees, and we would search for snakes, and boy, they were simple times. Every once in a while, I'd drive there. What a tiny EJ home that was. The backyard looks like a postage stamp. That's not how we remember it. That's what happens when we romanticize the past and want to go back to those good old days. Somehow they become better than they ever were. There is truly a sense that I had a sense of being home when I was at my grandparents' home, a sense of safety and security and protection a sense of freedom. And perhaps that's what I was longing for, but boy, that's not how I pictured it in my mind. I have this whole vast backyard to just explore the the beauties of creation. That's not how it appears today when I look at the house. Oh, it still brings back some of those feelings and some of those senses of, of, of being home, but it never does what perhaps I might have thought it would do. Writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also He has put eternity into man's heart so that no one can find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, for this is the gift of man. 
And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. But in that text, He reminds us that God has put eternity in man's heart. God has put a longing into the depths of the souls of every human being for a sense of belonging, a sense of of purpose, a sense of value, a sense of direction, a sense of peace and tranquility where we can just bask in the glory of that which we perceive to be a better time. Those better times were never here on earth. It's an illusion. It's this half-fulfillment of the longings of your heart. And, and maybe through nostalgia, you can talk yourself into the reality that, that those are better times, and I wish I could go back there. But the longing of your heart comes from something far more deeper than that place or that time or that field or that house, or that tree that you climbed, etc., and etc., and etc. We all have those longings. Perhaps Paul gives us a clue as to where they come from and expands upon this eternity in the heart of man when he says in chapter 3, verse 20 of his letter to the church at Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where all the perfection and all of the beauty and all of the peace and all of the tranquility and that sense of belonging and that sense of being home and that sense that all is well, that's where that can be found. And that's that eternity set in man's heart, that there's got to be something better than this. But we all make the mistake of thinking that it's somewhere back there in time. We fail to understand, no, that lies for us in the future. A better day indeed is coming. It's not wrong to reminisce. And I'm not sure it's entirely wrong to be nostalgic either. We must keep things in, pe- in perspective, and the good old days weren't as good as you thought. And today probably isn't as bad as you thought. Gibson also says, well, if it's getting worse and you believe that, and if you think it's going to keep getting worse, be of good cheer. Soon you will die. You won't know how bad it gets. Or... We say, there's nothing in this world can satisfy the desires of my heart. And if there's nothing in this world that can satisfy the desires of my heart, I must be made for a different world. The conclusions of C.S. Lewis. The eternity in our heart that is fulfilled when we see Him face to face. The longings of our heart complete in Christ alone. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis writes, these things, the beauty The memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn to dumb idols, breaking the hearts of worshipers, leaving us wanting. They never fulfill the desires of our heart. If I could only go back there, all the desires of my heart were fulfilled at that point in time in my life. And C.S. Lewis says, it's not so. And the desire to go back and the reminiscing for the good old days that demands that there be no change in our lives and no change in our future become idol worship to us, believing that somehow we can find everything we long for in the depths of our soul somewhere here under the sun on this earth. C.S. Lewis was wrestling 
or excuse me, uh, Solomon was wrestling with this. C.S. Lewis speaks of that. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. They're mere glimpses of the weight of glory and the things that are in store for God's people. In many ways, that's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It's not from wisdom that you long for the former days, but what you long for is good. Make sure you're looking in all of the right places. He turns and directs our attention and says, consider God at the end of that section. As we look through the realities of all of that, as we understand life in the Son, we will be told in the text this morning that everything that the Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, had tested by wisdom, his pursuits of being wise and finding a place of fulfillment, truly understanding who he was and where he was going and, and content with the realities of life, he says, are far off and they're very, very deep. They're elusive. I can't find them. Who can find it out? This world leaves me longing for something more. For some of you, we're trapped in the past. The past is not the answer. The world is not the answer. Your pursuits are not the answer. Only God can fill that void in your heart. We can't go back, and there are no do-overs. So he says in the text, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of your labor. But in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other, and He is still God. You are here, and you can't go there. So make the most of the opportunity provided for you. We begin to pick up the text in verse 15 as we move forward, considering the work of God and understanding that for whatever reason we're at this in this place at, at this time for a particular purpose and reason, and God is weaving together the events of life, whether they are earth-shattering, and often they are, or whether they're partially fulfilling to the deepest longings of your heart, and sometimes they are. God is, worship, God is working and, and weaving together all of those realities for His good and His glory. He is working them together, and we must simply be joyful and understand that this is where we are in life without giving up those longings for peace and tranquility and safety and security and healing and the absence of pain and the absence of weeping and the absence of tears. And if you read the Scripture, you know where that is. It's when we are present with Him. It's not that our longings are wrong. They are God-given. The problem is where we're looking. Solomon wrestles with that and continues to wrestle with it through the text. There are many difficult things in the first portion of chapter 7. There are equally difficult things in the last portion of chapter 7 as he shares his wisdom with us. 
He says in verse 15, in my vain, empty, meaningless, uh, this pursuit unfulfilled life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. He's saying life isn't fair. The way I figured it in my wisdom is that God would bless the righteous and He would punish the wicked, but in my understanding, as I have viewed everything, if I have, as I've lived my life to this extent and watched and calculated and accounted for everything, I am troubled that there is a righteous man who dies in his righteousness and a wicked man who lives a long life in his evil doing. What's up with that? Did you ever ask yourself that? I'm prone to that. This doesn't seem right. I thought this was supposed to work out in a little bit different way than, than this all came about. God, have you seen that person? Don't you know what's going on? Oftentimes, it's to make an excuse for our own behaviors, to deflect the blame to somebody else. At least I'm not that person, very pharisaical in nature. But he said, listen, it's not the way I pictured it to be. After I pictured it in my mind and, and saw life happen before my very eyes, this is the way it goes. So in light of that, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Listen, stop sweating the details. Try and live your life in the middle there somewhere. Mediocre. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Of course not. He's making a comparison that he will bring home in a couple of verses, and it's a cutting, cutting comparison. When he talks about being not overly righteous, perhaps, perhaps he's saying, hey, listen, don't claim to be something that you're not. We all struggle with this life. We all have these perplexing questions. There are no questions forthcoming. Don't make it out to appear that somehow you're at peace with everything that happens in life and you don't struggle with anything. God is always good, and and why are you sad? Scriptures teach us that weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Sadness is part of life. It's a part of the human experience, but we don't like sadness, so I want to escape, and I want to escape back into the past, to the good old days. It doesn't work. I want to escape into my self-righteousness and say, me, I'm not bothered with anything in life. God is on the throne. Isn't everything great? That's foolish, he said. Nobody lives that way. We all struggle with stuff. He's not denouncing righteousness or more righteousness. He's taking square aim at the pretentious among us who pretend that life is easy, who pretend that somehow the situations in life don't really impact us. We're so spiritual. If only you could be like me. When in the quiet moments we have grave doubts, a desire to escape and go back into the past, demand that God answers us. Why, 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 why? That's where life is lived 
for most of us. Some would look at this text and say, okay, not be overly righteous or too wise. Don't be overly wicked. What is he really saying? Well, maybe what he's saying is Why bother with this? Why, why just bother with this? Maybe it's the hedonist who's coming out and him saying, why bother with all of this deep thinking and painful reality? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Why, why bother being righteous? Why bother being wicked? Both of them bear consequences that our heart is not prepared to deal with. But I don't think he's saying that at all. I think perhaps he is challenging, in verse 15 especially, this retributive justice kind of notion that, that we sometimes are guilty of preaching in Christianity. As long as you do the right thing, God will shower you with blessing. How did that work out? To take it out of your own personal context, read the book of Job. A righteous man indeed came to a place in life where the train came off the track, and he exposes himself to us over a lengthy book, working through those realities. Retributive justice says, God will always do the fair and the just thing. But what we've done is limited that to this life under the sun. Please know God will always do the fair and the just thing. He reminds us that we will stand before Him and give an account of every deed, whether good or evil, and that is where justice presides. But in this world, evil sometimes wins out over justice, the wicked over the wise, so why bother with it all? Eat, drink, and be married. Tomorrow you die. That is not the teaching of Scripture. You say, well, the Bible says people will reap what they sow, they'll get what they deserve, and, and that has to be fair and just, and it will be, but not in this lifetime. He never promises that in this lifetime. He promises us trouble and a sinful reality. He's going to tell us why life turned out the way it turned out. Again, we can look at these verses saying, hey, he's giving up. He's saying, the end of all this, I'm tired of the whole thing. Why bother anymore? But I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Perhaps verse 18 gives us a hint to that. It is good that you should take hold of this. Don't be pretentious in your self-righteousness and don't follow the path of the fool. And from that, withhold not your hand. Consider both of those things. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who truly reverences and respects, who understands the sovereignty of God, who understands His perfect righteousness, who knows that the end game is truth and, and justice rightness in the world that has gone sideways will have a submissive spirit that again is reflected in verse 14. So we learn to fear God. In the day of prosperity, we are joyful. As we learn to fear God in the day of adversity, we rest in the fact that He has made one as well as the other and we cannot figure it out. 
but the fear of God keeps us from either of those extreme traps. In our conservative circles, the extreme trap is self-righteousness. We got it all figured out. We know all the answers of why God is doing what He's doing. In the dark moments, you can't even figure your own life out, and questions prevail, and answers are absent. Why? Why? Why, God? What a terrible thing to wrestle with, but that is our lot in life. And as you consider the way of the pretense, self-righteous, pharisaical approach to life, or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, it all ends the same. Anyhow, who cares? We balance that all out with the sovereignty of God, and we learn to be the one who fears God. Not living in extremes, not living in a world of make-believe, not living in the past, but living in the present, knowing and considering the work of God and His sovereignty, and believing that in the end of the day, all of those things, all of those longings of our heart, all of those passions deep in the depths of our life will be fulfilled when we see Him and become like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. It is fool's gold to think you can have that here on earth, that there are plenty, plenty of teachers out there that will promise you that you will be sorely disappointed. So if we can learn to fear God and in some way manifest the wisdom of God and and how we live our lives, it is a valuable thing. He is not denouncing wisdom. He's not denouncing the pursuit of understanding. He's not denouncing the desires of our heart. He's just saying, hey, be careful where you find those desires fulfilled. Verse 19, wisdom is valuable. It gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in the city. Wisdom is life-giving. It gives you a perspective to escape the realities of life. And when I say escape, I'm not talking about escape in a negative sense. I'm talking about getting out from under the weight of the world where you believe somewhere in the past is where you want to be, ignoring that you're in the present, and there's a God who is there. Sometimes I forget the God who is there. How about you? He whispers, don't you know I've got this? Don't don't you understand who I am? Don't you realize who put those longings in the depths of your heart? Don't you know that I'm the only one that can fulfill those longings? Don't you realize that I'm God? That kind of strength is life-giving in the situations of life that we find ourselves in where the evil seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. This is valuable wisdom, more so than ten rulers who in a city, those pragmatic politicians who instead of taking a position on right or wrong, blur all the lines of distinctions. They don't live principled lives, but, but populist, pragmatic kind of lives and based on situational ethics that were taught way back in the schools in the 70s. The reality 
is that God has given us the ability to discern through the wisdom that comes from above in the midst of the troubling things of life. And when we learn to fear Him, to respect and reverence and to place Him on His throne, His rightful throne, there is wisdom that gives us strength to negotiate all of the unanswered questions and unfulfilled longings of our soul. And then in verse 20, perhaps reflecting upon those who are wicked and prospered and those who are righteous and suffered, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who never sins. This is the balanced perspective that he was driving at in the first few verses that we've looked at, 15, 16, 17, and 18. It is a reminder that we live in a broken world. It is a reminder that we cannot live in pretense because we're as broken as anybody else. It is a reminder that all of the sins of the flesh under the sun we are susceptible to, and it reminds us that none of us have a handle on all of this. There is no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So don't make yourself out to be that and learn to live in that balanced perspective and perhaps when you're making those judgments on who is wicked and who is righteous, be careful because you're not righteous and you're not perfect and you have struggles. And you have shortcomings. And in essence, he's reminding us we're all needy people. Proven in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes says, one attitude toward other human beings should be conditioned by the awareness of one owns flawed reality. Isn't it interesting how easily we can put people into categories? Wicked, righteous, just, fool, wise, ignorant. The truth is, somewhere we float on this continuum between those two things, and we need to guard our steps when we come into the house of God. Some of us are so good at dissecting and analyzing everyone else's failures that we never give any consideration to our own. And the writer's saying, watch out for that. Be careful, because none of us are, are righteous. It reminds me of Christ's words to the scribes and the Pharisees, taking a speck out of someone else's eye when there's a, a pole protruding from yours, a, a clear, clear picture of the brokenness of life. Wisdom is good, but it doesn't resolve everything, and we are all sinful in some way. Do not take to heart because we're all sinful in some way. The things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have been cursed. Here's another example, he says, about us all being flawed. We walk down the hall and we see or hear someone whispering about us. We 
see people gathered together, and we make assumptions that they must be talking about us. And, and, and they say these words, and we take them to heart, and it cuts us to the quick, and we stay up all night thinking, what is wrong with these people? That's not who I am. And then, then he pulls a fast one on us. And he says, oh, by the way, you do that too. What's the difference between those two things? Your heart knows that many times you yourself have spoken of or slandered or grumbled about other people. We're, we're in this together. There's no one who does good all of the time. There is no one who is righteous all of the time. Stop mulling over and fixating on mere words, a snapshot in time. Be careful of the words that come out of your mouth toward others. None of us have this figured out, and none of us will. None, none of us will. Because there's not a righteous man among us, at least in the context of pretense that he deals with in the text. So we reflect upon his wrestling with the bigger issues of life, and he reflects upon the injustice of the world and the oppression of the world and the conflict of the world and the people of the world those who speak evil and whisper of us and we of other people. And he says, what a broken place this is. And all of this I have tested by wisdom. I'm trying to figure it out. Why do these things happen? He had said, I will be wise. He's now come to the conclusion it was far from me. There's a mystery to this world that I want to make black and white, wicked and righteous, evil people and good people, bad things in life and good things in life, but I can't figure it out. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can know it? I can't divide. I can't calculate. I can't account for it. I thought I had this all figured out. He gets to the end of his life and he says, very little that I have figured out. But even I am not a righteous man all the time and capable of doing evil. As he comes to this conclusion, he asks, who can find it out? Where do I go? Where do I go in the midst of the deepest issues of life to find out? Now, we know what he says at the end of the book, where he tells us to go, fear God and keep His commandments. What do we do day in and day out? Reminds me of Job. Began to question even God. God begins to tell Job and ask him a series of questions. Where were you when I created the world? Where, where, Where were you, Job? You got this figured out, you righteous man? You got this figured out to you who knew everything and know everything? You, you got this all, all set in your mind how this is supposed to, to work? By the way, Job spent too much time listening to his whispering friends, the very thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes warns us about. Somehow they convinced him that he had a beef with God. And as God was done with him, Job said, I have spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Oh, this is in the same place right now. 
So I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. How and why does the world work the way it works? And to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. It was still far from him. Although he learned the lesson, he could not let go of his quest to figure it out. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It was far from me. For purposes today, we're going to finish there. Because he goes into a section next that is a really, really difficult section to get into, and I don't have time to do it justice this morning. Some will think it misogynistic. Some will think that he's dismissing out of hand women. Some will think that he's saying what he's not saying or doing, what he's counseled against. So as we take this up next week, we'll dive into the text and, and really try and find out what was going on. But, but I want to finish with verse 29 if I could. See this alone I have found. There's one thing that I have uncovered in the midst of all of my musings about the injustice and the oppression and the longings of my heart and the world in which we know it is this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man for a purpose, but they have tried to do this on their own and come up with so many schemes to make life work all by themselves. But I have found out this one thing alone, that's our problem, not God's. And he goes back to an earlier time in the text. And in the midst of adversity, we do not know, nor can we find out why God is doing what He's doing. But when there are no answers coming from above, we seek out these schemes to make life work on our terms, but it never, 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 never works. We escape into the past. We escape into folly. We escape into the pursuits of this world. We escape into anything that takes our minds off the realities of life. rather than learning that in the quiet times is when God does some of His best work and reminds us, be still and know that I'm God. I've got this. You jump to the end of the book, and he says, so what's the point of all this? What did, what did I find out? Fear God, same thing he says in this text, and keep His commandments because that's what life is all about. That's it? That's it? The smartest guy who ever lived? That's it? If you're asking that question, you've missed everything that he said. (laughs) There's a God who sits on the throne who does all things well and all things good. And until we give up our schemes to figure it out, we will be unable to stand in His presence, reveling in His glory 
and understanding the deepest longings of our soul cannot be fulfilled in this world. Only God can do that. So fear God and keep His commandments. Why is counsel indeed really, really difficult to live out? Father, bless us. Encourage us. Equip us to negotiate the hardest times of life. Prepare us to deal with the realities when life goes sideways. Forgive us for our scheming and schemes to make life work on our terms. Forgive us for our judgmental spirits. Remind us, there's no one one truly righteous, all sin. And in the quietness of life, whether good times, prosperity, in the deepest valley we have ever been in, where the darkness prevents us from seeing anything. Teach us to be still, to know that you are God, to not race to some escape route that we have planned for events like this. But to know that in the most unexplained times of life, we serve a God who is there. We're so much like the writer. Hear our pleas. Soothe our wounds. Give us laughter in the times of blessing. And remind us that there's nothing in the past nor under the sun that brings fulfillment to the deepest longings of life. It is only found in you. May we find it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.